Hello, my name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcast, a bite-sized regular chat for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts will cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. I've been recently involved in planning a series of webcasts for healthcare professionals in the UK, which are all taking place during May 2021 as part of what we're calling Chronic Conditions Month. The webcasts, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to help all of us working in primary care with the significant challenges we've faced in diagnosing and managing chronic conditions over the past year in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Healthcare professionals in UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chroniconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining us. And to accompany the, these webcasts, the Chronic Conditions faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which we provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So, without further delay, please enjoy the third in this series of special episodes. This one features myself and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. I'm delighted to be joined today by Peter Bagshaw, a GP in Somerset, CCG lead for mental health, and also co-author of an older person's mental health primer. So welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our new podcast, which comes to you as an introduction to Chronic Conditions Month 2021 to be held throughout May. This will include a whole range string of interactive and informative webcasts designed to address the primary care challenges of diagnosing and managing chronic conditions at a time when COVID-19 has thrown out the rule book. So today in this podcast, we're going to be discussing severe mental illness and diabetes. So thanks, Peter, once again for, for joining us. No, thanks, Kevin. It, it's great to be having this discussion. And I think the fact that we've got this huge overlap with chronic conditions makes it really interesting. Um, so I, I, as a GP, have always hated diabetes. I find it very complex and very difficult to understand. But the link with SMI and with other chronic conditions, including dementia, has, has raised my interest in diabetes. Absolutely. I think I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. But I thought perhaps, Peter, we could start start from, from, from basics, really, severe mental illness, SMI. What, what do we exactly mean by SMI? It's not narrowly defined, but in general, we mean severe depression, especially bipolar depression and schizophrenia. And both of those have particular issues around uh, diabetes and other cardiometabolic uh, conditions, which sadly accounts for the roughly 20-year premature mortality in this group. So yeah, th thanks for that, Peter. And, and of course, chronic diseases such as diabetes plays a huge uh, demand, don't they, on both, from a, both a lifestyle perspective and treatments for people living with diabetes. And of course, my patients worry about the potentially debilitating complications and the reduced life expectancy that can be reduced uh, that can be associated with a diagnosis of diabetes. So the depression, severe depression, uh, can sometimes there, therefore be an understandable response, can't it, to a diagnosis of diabetes? Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it, the way the links go both ways. 
So if, you're, if you have severe mental illness, you're much more likely to have diabetes. If you have diabetes, um, I've read figures saying that you're about three times more likely to have depression, which as you say, is, is completely understandable. And also you're much more likely to have poorly controlled diabetes if you have severe mental illness. And again, you'll, you'll know a lot more about this than me, Kevin. Yeah. Oh, it's a really fascinating area and very important area, as you, you rightly pointed out already as well. I mean, the, the biological factors associated with diabetes, the hyperglycemia or the hypoglycemia themselves have a negative impact on mood. And a previous meta-analysis, albeit an older one, did describe an association between the severity of depression and actually HbA1c control as well. So very much, it's a, it's a bi-directional relationship, isn't it, Peter, as you've already eloquently explained, between a, a, a severe mental illness and, and diabetes. Absolutely. And then you alluded to some of these you know, really worrying st statistics as well about how common, how prevalent uh, uh, mental illness is in people living with diabetes. De depression and anxiety is twice as common in those living with type 1 and type 2 diabetes compared to the general population. And, and depression itself, as we discussed in type 2 diabetes, is associated with poor metabolic control. But I suppose what really struck me is that uh, among those people living with type 2 diabetes, major depression is associated with an increased risk of clinically significant microvascular and microvascular disease, and also an increased risk of mortality. So actually, that combination of depression and, and, and diabetes has an impact both on quality and quantity of life, uh, which, which, uh, which uh, of course, is very worrying from, from, from our perspective as an HCP, and of course, for my patients living with diabetes. It's a real vicious circle, isn't it? So people who are depressed are less likely to be active. So they're more likely to put on weight. People with schizophrenia, there's been some fascinating recent evidence that there's even a small genetic link that if you're more prone to schizophrenia, you seem to be genetically slightly more prone to diabetes as well. And then of course, if you have serious mental illness and schizophrenia, you're likely to be put on an antipsychotic and unfortunately, all the antipsychotics, even the, the neuroatypicals, are much more likely to cause weight gain, which are more likely to trigger or worsen type 2 diabetes. Uh, uh, absolutely. That, that, you know, whilst that link is very uh, fascinating and very important, we, 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 there's still so much we don't know, don't we, about that link? I mean, you mentioned the medications uh, are very important that we'll, uh, we're aware of that. And I, I, I know we're going to discuss that shortly. But there's emerging evidence too, isn't there, that the chronic stress we see in depression, in schizophrenia, leads to high levels of hormones such as cortisol and other inflammatory cytokines which leads to activation of the hypothalamic pituitary axis and a higher risk of diabetes. It, it really is a fascinating, fascinating area of research, isn't it? It is. And uh, if people attend the uh, our May conference, I've got some fascinating slides, which sadly I, I would struggle to remember <laughs> the details of, that show all this interlap, uh, uh, interlinking going, going around. Uh, so it is fascinating. And, and of course, throw into the mix things like diet, uh, which again, the, the gut-brain um, access is, is recently being increasingly recognized as being important, which again can, can cause inflammation that seems to worsen mental health issues. So it, it's a really fascinating and, as you say, developing field. So I guess the question for us as, as GPs is what can we do to break this vicious cycle? Uh, I, I, absolutely. That's, that is the $64,000 question, isn't it? 
So you mentioned medications, Peter. Of course, you have a lot of experience in uh, medications, pharmacology for uh, severe mental illness. Any sort of top tips, pitfalls to avoid as well uh, when choosing those medications um, when we're treating depression or, 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 or more severe depression or schizophrenia, particularly in people uh, with diabetes or at risk of diabetes? Well, sadly, it would be lovely to be able to give a, a list of of drugs saying these are the ones that you should choose that won't cause weight gain and increase your risk. But all the antipsychotics seem to give that increased risk. So my top tip would actually be to try and keep the use of medication to a minimum in this condition, because unfortunately there doesn't seem to be a safe drug that we can use. There are particular ones, aren't they, that, that have higher risks. And uh, in particular, I'm thinking about the ones that have a, a high anticholinergic burden um, so the, the older antipsychotics have a lot more uh, Parkinsonian side effects, for instance, uh, so they tend to be avoided. Likewise, the older uh, antidepressants have a lot more cardiac problems. But in general, I think we would say all of the antipsychotics are, are really bad news. And so you need to be on the lookout for early signs of weight gain. And I don't know what you think, Kevin, about the role of uh, lifestyle, uh, low-carb diets, that sort of thing, in terms of trying to control this. There is some evidence, isn't there, that people look for that sugar hit if they've got serious mental illness, which exacerbates the insulin resistance that leads on to metabolic syndrome. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There is emerging evidence to suggest that, but also good, good quality evidence, isn't there, that people with severe mental illness, such as schizophrenia, are, are motivated to change their lifestyle, stop smoking, for example, and lose weight. It's a myth, isn't it, that people with severe mental illness are not motivated to change their lifestyle. I know that we know that from our collective clinical experience. So absolutely, like we would do with any patient with adverse cardiometabolic risk factors, we must reinforce that all-important lifestyle advice. And whether we take a low-carb approach or a different dietary approach, it's very much down to a discussion, isn't it, between us and that person sat in front of us about what's realistic for for, for their lifestyle. So absolutely, um, we we should be, as with any patient, reinforcing that all-important all lifestyle advice. I'm really glad you raised the question of motivation, Kevin, because certainly until I started looking at the evidence, I think my feeling was, well, these people have got so much else going on in their life, they're not really going to be motivated to change. And as you say, the evidence is quite clear that that's not the case. Absolutely. So we should be absolutely as focused in helping our patients with uh, schizophrenia and other severe mental illness uh, to improve their cardiometabolic rate by improved lifestyle. So so that that's a really great myth-busting uh, thing that you've brought in and something I, th I think, I hope everybody takes away from this. Uh, absolutely. Well, what would your next suppose... step be? We've gone down the lifestyle route Maybe it's not been successful. Are you an early intervener in terms of medication? Yeah, yeah. So that, another fascinating area as well, isn't it? Uh, so, 
I, I want to, I suppose relevant to this, uh, your question there is I was delighted to see that uh, uh, severe mental illness and the use of antipsychotic medication are, are now both risk factors in the updated Q-Risk 3 calculator and also the Q-Diabetes calculator assess 10-year risks of diabetes. Very important, isn't it, Peter, that these are, are, are identified as, uh, uh, as major risk factors for future cardio, uh, cardiometabolic illness. Yes, absolutely. And the, the issue of fat shaming is a difficult one, isn't it? So I, I think we need to look very early for increased weight gain and, and intervene on that. And, and the way I try and approach it is say, I'm not trying to talk about fat shaming or discussing your, your weight. Obesity is a side effect of insulin resistance and metabolic uh, syndrome. And so it's a, it's a warning flag that we need to be worried about your cardiometabolic health and, and intervene in that. Is that does that seem a, a reasonable approach to you, Kevin? Yeah, absolutely. Going back to that question you originally asked me, I, I am an inter-early uh, intervener with metformin alongside any antipsychotic therapy. So mm. if my if I'm going to commit or my local psychiatrist has committed my patient to a long-term uh, medication with, say, something like olanzapine, uh, we start metformin at that at the onset to help, as you said, mitigate some of that that weight gain. I mean, I know metformin is essentially weight neutral, isn't it? But you can you can tend to to weight loss. But more importantly, as you said, just to help mitigate some of that insulin resistance associated with some of these antipsychotic drugs. Uh, and I've had some really hugely beneficial uh, effects in terms of uh, mitigating that early weight gain that, that you've uh, alluded to. So certainly it's something I think we should all consider in primary care uh, you know, perhaps after discussion with our local psychiatry colleagues. Uh, and and then, of course, that has a knock-on impact, doesn't it, on overall cardiometabolic risk reduction as well. I'd agree. I think, I think there is a case, isn't there, for co-prescribing it with antipsychotics because we know there's such a high risk. And what do you feel about statins, where, again, some yeah. people make the case that almost by definition, if you're on an antipsychotic, you should be on a statin? Uh, I completely agree with this as well. Uh, we should have lower thresholds for considering statins for primary prevention. Of course, card we're talking about here for cardiovascular disease in anyone living with severe mental illness. The nice lipid 2014 guidance, a wee bit out of date, uh, ripe for an update, uh, did suggest a 10-year 10% uh, threshold for considering statins. We might even want to consider a lower threshold, or as you said, even just co-prescribing it alongside long-standing, long-term antipsychotic therapy. So a really useful tool, Peter, I don't know if you've come across it, is a, it's an RCGP-supported tool called the Leicester Positive Cardiometabolic Health Resource. Uh, and it's essentially a primary care nurse-led toolkit which facilitates a simple assessment and intervention framework to protect the cardiovascular and metabolic health of our patients with severe mental illness, receiving you know, antipsychotic medication. So it encourages us to check a number of parameters, lipids, HbA1c, blood pressure, weight, as we've mentioned a number of times, and encouraging us and encouraging us not just to screen for these uh, uh, parameters, but to intervene with things like antihypertensives, metformin, um, and statins, as, as you've asked me as well. So yes, again, to answer your question, I would uh, essentially co-prescribe statins uh, for my patients with severe mental illness who I know are going to continue on antipsychotic uh, drugs long-term. Mm. I, I think that's really interesting, and I, I completely see the logic for that. 
the I would very much focus. I'm I'm into lifestyle, and I, I I'm sure you've seen the work that David Unwin has done in reversing type two diabetes in over half his patients. So I would be very keen to look at those lifestyle factors because um, I don't know if you agree, but I've read fat figures suggesting that, for instance, hypertension, idiopathic hypertension, essential hypertension is probably 85% due to metabolic syndrome. So again, reversing that, we can help our patients with high blood pressure. Do you agree with those figures or not, Kevin? Yeah. Well, the, the, the figures I've got to admit, I'm not specifically familiar with, but absolutely just from my own clinical experience, I would suggest that 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 that, that sort of magnitude of contributory effect uh, is, is quite correct. And we again, you know, hypertension is a great example you've brought up. So many things our, our patients can do from a lifestyle perspective to, to, to reduce their blood pressure. Uh, there's a number of lifestyle interventions that are as good as, if not better, than many of the drugs we use for hypertension, isn't it, people? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they'll, they'll often improve dyslipidemias as well, won't they? So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 absolutely. So, uh, uh, yeah, once again, completely agree with you. We cannot underestimate the benefits of lifestyle intervention uh, for all of our patients, but particularly for uh, our patients living with severe mental illness as well. So I thought, Peter, to start taking a step back from things, you know, we've been, of course, focusing with, with uh, on, on diabetes, our patients living with diabetes, but we, we really should be uh, vigilant uh, and alert to the symptoms and signs of depression in anybody living with any long-term condition, shouldn't we? Yes, and our, our nurse-led diabetes clinics will, will generally say, um, have you got impotence? Are your toes dropping off? And at the end of that, have you got depression? And by the time you've gone through the checklist, I think a lot of people will say yes, won't they? Um, but diabetes, particularly, in, uh, sorry, depression, in, particularly in older people, often doesn't present with people saying, I feel depressed. So I've, I've taken a, particularly a particular interest in older people's mental health, and they will tend to present in a different way, a bit like children in a non-specific way, often with behavior changes, uh, losing interest in things. But again, we'll often say, well, it's understandable maybe that you've lost interest in stuff because you are older, frail in a nursing home. So there's a, an estimate that we, we under-diagnose dementia and uh, depression in nursing homes by about a factor of five. So proactive screening for depression in particular uh, for older, frail people is really important. And would you suggest uh, to, to me, to our listeners uh, today, any specific screening tools or is it just all about having a conversation with that person or a loved one? Any tips for us there, Peter? Yes, there, there is a, um, a geriatric depression score which you can use and it's in the mental health primer uh, in the appendix. I find the, the two questions, one, do you feel depressed and two, have you lost interest in things, is, is absolutely as useful as that. And it's that anhedonia, that's loss of interest. And I'd cite Alistair Burns' grandparent test that if somebody has stopped enjoying uh, seeing their grandchildren, it's likely that they have very severe depression. Okay, no, that's a really useful practical uh, take-home tip. I mean, those are, of course, were the two questions. Well, we've not had quaff in Scotland for a number of years now, but those were the, the two questions we used to screen for depression in any cro chronic disease, courtesy of quaff, wasn't it? During the last past month, have you been bothered by having little interest or pleasure in doing things? 
during the past month have you been bothered by feeling down depressed or hopeless so yeah so essentially you're saying continue that even for our older populations as well very much so and and don't be put off when they say well i haven't really got anything to be interested in or you'd expect to feel down at my age because i've got all these illnesses or, or whatever so so don't be deflected if they give a positive answer to your screening but then give reasons why it should be positive and it can often present in a very similar way to dementia the two can be very difficult to diagnose because dementia often presents about 80 percent of people with early dementia present with apathy and people with depression also get a, a slowing down and memory issues that you can get with dementia. So it's sometimes worth a trial, a six-week trial of an antidepressant if you're not sure which it is. That's perfectly valid. Great. No, thanks. That's a really, really useful practical tip there again. So perhaps in returning to one of my patients with diabetes that we've diagnosed with, with depression, do you mind just giving us a few tips and again, pitfalls to avoid about both psychological interventions, but also pharmacological interventions we might consider as well. So, so maybe starting with psychological interventions, uh, Peter, any, any top tips or pitfalls to avoid for me in primary care? I think a top tip, again, going back to older people's mental health, is that we refer very few people for talking therapies uh, in older age groups. And actually, the evidence is that they stick with the talking therapies and they have better outcomes than younger people. So I think my top tip would be, again, try and persuade older people to have talking therapies if they present with depression because they're much more likely to do well. Great. And then uh, younger patients, uh, of course, first line as well, psychological interventions and talking therapies where possible too. Absolutely. And that's in, in line with nice guidelines, isn't it? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know about you, Kevin. I, I've kind of developed a bit of a rule of thumb that particularly for younger people, if they come along saying, I feel really down, I don't know why I do, um, There's no, everything is going well, and then you ask them and they say, well, yes, my, my father had severe anxiety, my mother had OCD or depression. That pushes me more towards it being a biological explanation and maybe more in, in favor of using drug therapy th first. Whereas people who are depressed or down because of circumstances they tend not to respond well to medication. And they're absolutely the people who should be encouraged to have talking therapies. Is, is that something you've experienced? Uh, absolutely, very much with you. It's a very useful rule of thumb, isn't it? And, and for that latter group of people you mentioned, I definitely signpost uh, to you know various online. I'm sure we've all got uh, plenty of good local uh, online resources. Uh, but CBT self-help material, for example, I find can be very helpful for those individuals, as you said, with situational uh, symptoms. So then that, that segues quite nicely then with pharmacological therapy. So for those individuals then, particularly focusing again with my patients living with diabetes, whom you, you suspect a more biological underlying uh, etiology and you want to uh, consider early pharmacological therapy, any tips on what drugs we might use or, or certainly what drugs we might should avoid to treat depression in the context of diabetes? Yes, so um, absolutely. So I think we would certainly be keen to avoid anything that's sedating. And we don't really use tricyclics now. And as, a, as an aside, if people are still using amitriptyline for back pain or, or poor sleep, please don't. 
it's got a huge anticholinergic burden, makes us more likely to to uh, develop dementia as well as making memory problems worse if we've got them. But amongst the SSRIs, we know that some are more sedating than others. So metazapine uh, and proxetine uh, tend to be sedating, so I would avoid those. Metazapine, interestingly, Kevin, and I'm sure you know this, um, it's actually more sedating at lower dosage. Yes, which yes, is a cu- really quite a curiosity of the drug. Isn't counterintuitive, it? isn't it? Um, so, so it's worth remembering that. Uh, uh, it's something that I didn't realize until fairly recently. So to try and avoid those. And of course, um, people with diabetes are more likely to have heart disease. So you need, need to be a little bit more cautious about the drugs that prolong the QT interval. And I'm sure you can jump in on that and, and give yeah, us a yeah, list. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. D- to be honest, increasingly my go-to drug if I'm managing diabetes and depression, uh, coexisting diabetes, is, is sertraline. And that, that, again, is consistent with NICE guidance. Uh, sertraline, uh, generally, it's been around for, for many, many years, hasn't it, Peter? And uh, it's uh, generally well-tolerated, I've found from my own clinical in- experience, has fewer drug-drug interactions than perhaps other SSRIs. And again, relevant to what you've just pointed out is it has least impact on the QT interval as well. Uh, so uh, often sertraline is my, my go-to uh, therapy. And actually, interestingly, we have some previous evidence, you know, albeit uh, a, a lower quality systematic review published way back in 2010, suggested that sertraline may, may actually be more helpful in terms of least impact on glycemic control as well in the context specifically of diabetes. So uh, I just start 50 milligrams once a day um, and quite early on, to be honest, step up to that 100 milligram dose, um, even you know even uh, by four weeks, and then usually just stay on that and then titrate things depending on, on, on the situation. That's, a, that, that's my usual sort of, of protocol, if you like. And often, of course, for my patients with diabetes, we do need to consider generally longer term treatment, uh, six to 12 months, really to minimize the risk of relapse in the context of a chronic condition such as diabetes. And sometimes patients may even need to require treatment for up to to two years. And as always, uh, you know, involve our local mental health colleagues as as appropriate. Absolutely. I'd agree with that. And I I think the only things I'd add is that, uh, again, in older people, the motto, start low and go slow, is worthwhile. Yes. So in that group, you probably wouldn't titrate it up quite as quickly. But quite, it, again, it's recommended point. as the first line for older people. And then maybe the other thing about SSRIs that's become evident recently is that you probably do need to taper them off quite gradually, especially if you've been on them for a long time. And and this is something that a few years ago wasn't really recognized, was it? But we now know that they do need to be tapered off gradually in most cases. So Peter, the, the time has flown by actually. We've only got a few minutes left, but I, I thought it might be nice just to f- finish off with a couple of minutes discussion on this uh, the emerging co- concept or it's, it's certainly something that's had a lot of attention recently of diabetes distress. Uh, I, this is something I, I found really interesting and again, very important and relevant for us all working in primary care. So diabetes distress is is defined broadly as the concerns and worries about diabetes and its management. So whilst depression is a DSM-defined disorder with specific symptoms, 
Diabetes distress reflects an emotional response, an appropriate emotional response to a chronic illness such as diabetes. So indeed, you can dis- get distress. You can get uh, distress in in anybody living with any chronic condition. So, what's your take on this, Peter? Absolutely, and again, it's something that talking therapies, cognitive behavioural therapy in particular, yes. is really helpful with, because a lot of us are living with conditions. And it's the way we approach those that makes the difference to our quality of life. So CBT may not get rid of our diabetes, but they may help us cope with it in a more positive way and not affect our life. Is is that something you found helpful, Kevin? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, the first challenge is identifying diabetes distress. So possible signs are... Be- if you're a patient, if you're sensing a feeling of they are being overwhelmed and defeated by their diabetes or anger, frustration, negative feelings about their diabetes, or the feeling that diabetes is controlling their lives rather than them controlling their diabetes. If you're getting these sort of feelings or uh, statements from your patients, absolutely, we should be aware of the possibility of diabetes distress. And then, as you said, very much uh, how we manage this is support. Talking therapies, as you said, referral to psychological services, maybe referral to structured for an update for structured diabetes education. Um, and then, of course, simply doing what we do well in primary care, showing empathy, reassuring, uh, and supporting that individual. So I just wanted to, to highlight that very quickly. It's perhaps something that is, is perhaps under-recognized in, in primary care. I think really important. And I'd add to that the importance of other ways to help ourselves apart from formal talking therapies. I've I'm, I'd sometimes like to under-medicalize rather than over-medicalize. So sure. there, we've got huge evidence, haven't we? A, a real evidence base that exercise is incredibly helpful. Being out in nature is incredibly helpful. Trying to yes. keep ourselves in the moment is incredibly helpful. And, and this can be taught with um, talking therapies. But I, I'm, a, as, as you may know, a, a black belt in karate. And you really got to stay in the moment there. Otherwise, you get punched in the nose. So that sort of practical lifestyle advice can make a huge difference to our patients, I think. Uh, absolutely. I fully, fully uh, agree with your comments there. So I think, Peter, unfortunately, that's uh, time up for us. I really enjoyed that discussion uh, with you. Thanks so much for your input there. Any parting comments for our listeners today i hope we've given them a, a enough of a taster that they'll come back in may but thank you kevin i, I absolutely fascinating to me and the, although lockdown has forced these things on us rather than the the real conferences it's actually been a, a huge opportunity i think to stress the way the different chronic conditions overlap and that we're not working in silos there's a huge interplay between the different conditions so thank you very much no no problem thanks for joining uh, joining me peter And thank you all for listening. We hope you found this podcast helpful. Please make sure to register both for our other podcasts in the series and also uh, for our interactive webcast brought to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month 2021. And and you can sign up at chroniconditions.co.uk. So thanks for listening, everyone. And we hope to, to see you again soon. See you in May. Thank you.